0: What a text. What a text. Charles Spurgeon once said that there are some texts in the Bible that are so big that if the preacher did nothing but just repeat the text over and over again, you'd have a great sermon. In fact, that is how Charles Spurgeon was converted. I wonder if you've heard the story. He was 15 years old. He was on his way to church. There was a snowstorm. He didn't make it to the church he intended to make it to. And so he ducked into a small Methodist chapel on the way where there was a substitute lay preacher he was not a preacher, he was not prepared to preach a sermon that morning, and so that substitute just got up, and he recited Isaiah forty five twenty two, over and over again. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. He had nothing else to say. He wasn't prepared. He said that verse over and over and over again, and that was enough to change Charles Spurgeon forever. Philippians 1.21, which is right in the middle of our verses today, is a text like that. Philippians one twenty one is that kind of text. If I just stood up here, I really believe this, if I just stood up here and repeated Philippians one twenty one over and over again. For some of you, if the Holy Spirit moved in your heart, that would be enough to change you forever. Children who are with us today. And teenagers who are with us today. Or some young adults who are here today. If you grasp what Paul is saying in these verses, more importantly, if what Paul is saying in these verses grasps you, It will be a moment you'll never forget. This scripture that we're looking at today, it is that kind of scripture. If you get what Paul is saying today, more importantly, if it gets you, if that happens today, and I'm praying that it happens today, and it can happen today, if that happens, it will be a moment This day, this time, that you will, for the rest of your life, you will never, ever forget. It has the potential to change you forever. As you are young, especially, and thinking about... And we'll be thinking about more. Your future and your life that seems all ahead of you. This is the kind of scripture, if the Spirit of God moves in you, that can change the course of your entire life and death. But we've been studying Paul's letter, which he wrote while he was in house arrest in Rome to these Christians in Philippi. We've been studying it for five weeks now. Last week, or last time, I should say, that I was with you preaching in Philippians in verses 12 through 18. We learned that Paul was rejoicing because his imprisonment had served to advance the gospel. We saw that in verses 12 through 18. And now this morning, in verses 18 through 26, we find Another reason that Paul is rejoicing, and here it is. Here is a summary of our text today. And by the way, we will be spending at least a couple weeks just in this text. Maybe more. So here's the other reason that Paul is rejoicing. Here's a summary of the text we're looking at today. Paul has total confidence that whether he lives or dies, he will be delivered and Christ will be honored in his body. Let me say that one more time. Paul has total confidence that whether he lives or dies, he will be delivered and Christ will be honored in his body. And that makes Paul supremely happy. Because that is what Paul wants more than anything. What Paul wants more than anything is for Christ to be honored. And here he is confident that whatever happens, whether he lives or whether he dies, he has total confidence That Christ is going to be honored. And that's what he wants in life. He wants Christ to be honored. He wants others to see in and through him how great and good Christ is. He wants others to come to know and love Christ through his body. Through his life or his death. Now, before I pray, I'd like us all to consider a question. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want more than anything? Is it to honor Christ? We all came here this morning wanting a lot of things. But there is something underneath all those wants that you want more than anything. And that thing, whatever it is, that you want more than anything, it drives your life. It pushes you in the directions you go in your life. There is something that you want more than you want anything else. Is it Christ? Or is it comfort? Or is it control? Or is it success? Or is it power? Or is it? The approval of others? Is it the admiration of others? Or do you want Christ honored in your life? Is that a consuming desire yet? It should be. And it should be because of who you are and who I am and who Christ is. If you and I understand, really understand, who we are and who God is, then we will want nothing more than for Him to be honored. For Him to be glorified. For His name to be great. His fame, not mine. His name, not mine. His worship, not mine. Do you know this morning that you are a sinner? Do you know that you have offended God Over and over and over again. Do you know that it is your natural instinct to disobey God, to dishonor God, to disregard God, to go your own way, to live how you want to live, to pursue your comfort and not His honor? To trust yourself and not him. To work and earn your way to him and not trust his son Jesus. Do you know that that is your natural instinct? And your life is a picture over and over again of that working out and choosing over and over again yourself and what you want and what you desire and not God and not what He wants and not what He desires. And some of us are good at not doing that blatantly. We do it religiously. So it looks like we're doing good things and it looks like we're rooting our life in the Bible. But when it comes down to it, we've made an idol We call Him God, but He's a God that is not upset with what we struggle with. It's a God that affirms us and affirms our beliefs, even if they're contrary to His Word. And it's a God who pats us on the back, regardless of how we live and regardless of whether or not we're honoring Him or not. Do you understand that you're a sinner this morning? And do you know that Christ is a Savior? Do you feel now desperate need for salvation? And do you know who Jesus is? That He came. That He lived a perfect and sinless life because you cannot live a perfect and sinless life. That He suffered That he was punished. That he died on a cross to take the punishment that his people deserve. So that the penalty for your sin can be paid. That if you would believe him and trust him and love him, his death would count as your death. And that's not all, but that His life would count as your life. Perfect and sinless life in Christ. If you understand that and if you believe that, what do you want to do? You want to honor Him. You want to glorify Him. You want to love Him. You want to worship Him. Friends, if you have not already, turn to Christ right now. In this moment, turn to Christ. Don't put it off. You can't put it off. Turn to Christ now. For those of you who are so young, Turn to Christ at the beginning of your life. Don't do this later. If you do, you'll look back with so much regret and wish that you had lived for Christ longer than you had. We get so excited about deathbed conversions, and there's something glorious about a deathbed conversion, but a a deathbed conversion, sweet as it is, is always filled with sadness because someone realizes that they've squandered an entire life. So the moment is now. Turn to Christ. Turn from your dead idols. Turn from your earthly treasures. Turn from your foolish hopes. Turn from your sin. Turn from your own works and your own ways. Turn from your efforts to save yourself. Turn to Christ now and live for Him. This sounds like an upside-down sermon. That's supposed to be at the end of the sermon. Won't you come? That's the end of the sermon. Now, this sermon, that needs to be at the beginning because we're talking about living for Christ. So now, before I preach the rest of this sermon, we should pray together. Would you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, turn our hearts to you now. Fill us with an understanding of you and a belief in your gospel. Give that gift of faith to us now so that we may, with new and fresh, pure hearts, learn how to live and die for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have here, you'll find that on page 636. Page 636. Let's spend some time getting an overview of the text that we have, and then we will slow down and look at two things. So that's where we're going. Let's get an overview of the text, and then we'll slow down and look at two things. We will look at our lives, and we will look at our deaths. I'm going to ask you this morning to think about your life, and I'm going to ask you this morning to think about your death. We have to when we read Paul's words. So let's begin. Look at verse 18b. It's at the beginning of that paragraph, but it's technically the second half of verse 18. Here's what we see. We see that Paul is rejoicing. What does that mean? It means he's, he's happy. He's joyful. He's smiling. He's laughing. He's cheerful. He is rejoicing. And he's rejoicing, we're going to see, because he knows something. That is how you get joy, by the way. It is from knowing things. Here's the worldly lie. You get joy by getting what you want. Getting what you want will not bring you joy unless what you want is God. Joy is rooted in knowing things. So what is it that Paul knows? Let's read verse 18b. Yes, And I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And the this is Paul's imprisonment. So he knows that through, he says, your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance. Deliverance. So here is what Paul knows that makes him rejoice, according to those verses. Here is what he knows. He knows, number one, that the Philippians are going to pray for him. He knows, number two, that they are going to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. And he knows, number three, that the result of their prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit will be his deliverance. So he knows that he knows the Philippians will pray for him. He knows he's going to be helped by the Holy Spirit and he knows that that is going to result in what he calls his deliverance. So as he sits there chained to a guard, he remembers that and it makes him rejoice. Incidentally. Incidentally. If you are in trouble, this is what you want people to pray for you. This is how you want people primarily to pray for you. You want them to pray that you would be helped by the Holy Spirit. That may not be all that you want them to pray, When you're sick and when you're poor and when you're tired and when you're depressed and when you're discouraged and when circumstances are beating you down. We're very quick to pray and there's nothing wrong with praying for circumstances to change, for some kind of relief. But here's what you want to pray primarily, Lord, help them with the Holy Spirit. When your friends are in trouble, this is primarily how you want to pray for them that they would be helped by the Holy Spirit. Now, what does Paul mean by deliverance? Let's look at these verses and answer some questions. What does Paul mean by deliverance? Let me me read the verses again. Verses 18 and 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, Paul said. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So you see that? He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now that sounded to me like delivered out of jail. That's the this he's talking about. Deliverance from his imprisonment sounds to me The plain reading is he's going to be delivered out of jail. He's going to be pardoned. And he knows that. He's not going to be killed. He's on death row. He's facing Roman execution. So it sounds like he has joy because he knows that he's going to be pardoned. He's going to be freed. Maybe that's what Paul wants more than anything. He wants freedom. That's what I would want. If I were in prison, I think that's what I would be asking you to pray for. I would want to be out. I'd want to be reunited with my family. I'd want to be able to preach the gospel publicly and freely again. I'd want to be out of chains. That would be my prayer request. So is Paul Is Paul saying that through the prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Holy Spirit, he is going to be pardoned from prison? Allowed to live, released to preach the gospel again. And that gives him joy. Is that what Paul's saying? After all, that's what happened in Philippi. He's writing to them. He was in jail and then he was miraculously freed from jail. And he was allowed to go on preaching the gospel. So here he says, I know that this imprisonment is going to end in my deliverance. And so I will rejoice Is that what he means? No. That's not what Paul means. It's made very clear. Look with me. It's made very clear in the next verse that for Paul, deliverance means more than getting out of jail. Look at verse 20 verse 20, he is explaining what he means by deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, and here it is, whether by life or by death. So, track with me. Paul is saying that Christ will be honored by life. In other words, if I get out of jail, Christ will be honored. Or, he says, by death, which would mean he's executed. Paul is saying whether I am released from prison and delivered in that way or I'm executed, I'm being delivered either way and Christ will be honored either way. In Paul's mind, both are deliverance. If he's released from prison, deliverance. If he's executed, deliverance. Both are deliverance for Paul Because, what does he say? Whether he lives or dies, he's not going to be ashamed. And Christ is going to be honored. And he is certain of this. It is, he says, his confident expectation. Whether Paul lives or dies, he is confident that Christ is going to be honored In his body. It's interesting, or I thought it was interesting, that Paul says in these verses we have today, he says body or flesh three times. He says body over and over again. He is thinking about his body. Some of you don't want to think about your body. Some of you try not to think about your body. Some of us think too much about our body. Paul is thinking about his body. Your body is very important. You should think about your body. Christopher Hitchens, the famous dead atheist, once said, I don't have a body, I am a body. But that's not true. You are a body and a soul. Or you are an embodied soul. God made them both. It is who you are. It is all very important to God. It should be very important to you. We get this wrong a lot by either not considering our body enough or considering our body too much. But we should, as Paul does, consider your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your mouth. And how Christ will be honored in your body. So I thought it was interesting. Paul is thinking about his body, probably, I think, because his body's gone through a lot. Maybe he's malnourished, he has probably been beaten, his skin is on his wrists rubbed raw. By chains and cuffs. And as he's sitting there, imprisoned, he's thoughtful about his body. And he's thinking about life and death. What's to come of this body? He's thinking about that and how, either way, Christ is going to be honored. That's what he's saying. Whether in life or death, he doesn't just say Christ will be honored. Whether in life or death, Christ will be honored in this body that he made. So here's what I did this week. I slowed down and considered what would happen to or with Paul's body if he lived And what would happen to or with Paul's body if he died? And then I tried to figure out how Christ would be honored in both. Because I'm trying to get in Paul's mind as he's sitting there looking at his body and saying, whether I live and get out of here or I'm executed, Christ is going to be honored with and in this body. So I want to try to figure out how, how is that going to work? So here's what I came up with. I hope it's helpful for you. What about in life? Well, if Paul lives, he will be released from prison. That's actually what is going to happen. He will be imprisoned again, and then he will be executed. But he will be released from this imprisonment. He doesn't know that, though. So if he lives, he's looking at his body, he'll be released from prison. And and then what will happen with his body? Well, his feet will take him to people who are in need. His feet will take him to people who need to hear the gospel. His his arms and his hands will work. And they will embrace. And they will serve. His ears are going to listen to those that he loves and, and his ears are going to hear truth and his ears are going to hear gospel. His, his eyes will see God's creation more than he can see trapped in this house. His eyes will see God's people. His taste buds will taste God's good gift of food. And maybe most importantly for Paul, his mouth, will move and preach the gospel. So here Paul is thinking about his body. And if I live, if I'm let out of here, Christ will be honored in my body. Then I can think of all kinds of ways, right? That Christ will be honored in his body if he lives. We've seen Christ honored in his body. Up until this point, it's going to continue. Christ will be honored in that. And that was fairly easy for me to figure out how Christ would be honored in Paul's body if he lived. But how would Christ be honored in Paul's body in his death? In his body. So I started thinking what would happen to his body? What is he thinking about? Well, likely his body would be separated from his head. He'll be decapitated. Before that he his body would be bruised, maybe tortured, cut. Beaten. And most likely after he is executed, his body will be burned. So his body is going to end up being a heap of ashes. How does that honor Christ? That's what I was trying to figure out. I understand how Christ will be honored in your life, Paul, in your body. You're out preaching the gospel. But if your body gets reduced to a heap of ashes because you have been decapitated and incinerated, how how in the universe is Christ honored in your body? That's a terrible thought. That's a terrible ending. That's a tragic ending. That's not how this should go. You should be released. Pray that you are released. That's how Christ will get maximum glory. Not you getting killed and burned up. Then you're done. You could go and preach and keep being a missionary and a pastor and plant more churches and more people would hear the gospel. So I'm I'm struggling now as I'm studying this and trying to figure out how can he say, whether in life or in death, I'm confident, totally confident, that Christ will be honored in my body. The next verse the verse. Verse 21 explains how Christ can be honored in Paul's death. Listen. Verse 21 explains how Christ can be honored in the body of any Christian if He thinks like this when he dies. This verse is a summary of Paul's outlook on life and death. And here's what he says. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's the reason he gives here. For, how is all this possible that you've just said, Paul? Paul. This is how it's possible because or for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, actually, look with me, that little word is, do you see the little word is? It shows up twice in this verse. Did you know that that little word is is not in the original Greek? it's been added by translators to complete an English sentence. But when Paul wrote this, he did not include the word is. It's much stronger. Here's how it literally reads in the original Greek. For to me, to live Christ... To die, gain. For to me, to live, Christ. To die, gain. Goes straight from live to Christ. I don't even want another little word in there. No verbs, nothing. Live, Christ. Die, Gain, it's for emphasis. What he is saying, he is saying emphatically. So, what is he saying? What does that mean? That's what we want to understand. What is Paul saying? And, and how, does, how does what he's saying then mean that Christ will be honored in his body, whether he lives or dies? So there's two parts there. Let's look at each part. The first thing he says is, For to me, to live Is Christ. For to me, this is very personal for Paul. This is like, I don't know about you, I don't know about you, Romans, I don't know about you, Philippians, for to me, This may not be how those around Paul think. This may not be how Rome thinks. It may not be how his friends think. This may not be how Paul's parents think. But for Paul to live is Christ. Christ is everything to Paul. Christ is everything to Paul. Christ is Paul's purpose. Paul lives to please Christ. Christ is Paul's priority. There is nothing in Paul's life more important than Christ. Christ is his passion. He loves Christ. He wants to commune with Christ. If the end of the day comes, and some of you are like this, if he has not communed with Christ, it doesn't matter how good the day went, it feels empty. Because his passion is Christ. He wants Christ to be the pattern of his life. He wants to be like Christ. He wants to live like Christ. Christ is the power in Paul's life. He will say in chapter 4, verse 13, he can do all things through Christ who empowers or strengthens him. To live Christ, Christ is everything to Paul. Paul does not say Sundays Christ, that's not what he says. Life, Christ. Christ is everything. Every day of the week. Every moment of every day. In a couple chapters, listen to how Paul works this out in Philippians 3. Let me read you verses 7 through 9. He's working out for us what he means to live Christ. And he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. You hear him working it out? He's telling us, listen, I am at a point in my life where nothing, absolutely nothing in my life compares to Christ. Christ is absolutely everything. And what does he say? He says, I consider all other things other than Christ in comparison to Christ rubbish. which is a general translation the word is used to describe excrement that's what paul is saying excrement what a visual paul is giving his readers compared to christ everything else in my life i count as Excrement. Friends, if you have Christ, you have everything. If you don't have Christ, you have excrement. That's the force of what Paul is saying. To live Christ. The second part. For to me, to die is gain. To live, Christ, to die, gain. This is tough. How is death gain? Death is ugly. Death is ugly. I don't know how familiar you are with death. It's awful. It's ugly. Saw my dad's body after he died, saw my mom's body after she died. It's horrible. It's the stuff of nightmares. Death gain? Have you ever been to a funeral and there's an open casket? Somebody awkwardly, I understand, not knowing what to say, says something like, Doesn't he, doesn't she look great? No. No. They look awful. They look dead. That looks like a shell. It's creepy. There's no life. It's ugly. I don't even want to look at this. And Paul has the audacity, thinking about his death, thinking about his decapitated body, thinking about his body as a heap of ashes, to say, death, gain. So listen to Paul in the next few verses, 22 and 23. We've got to understand this. He says, beginning in verse 22, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And that, we get that. We understand that. I see how Christ would be honored. You live in the flesh. Fruitful labor. You go and preach the gospel. Yet, which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. What are you talking about, Paul? This is not a tough decision. You go out, you keep preaching the gospel, and you're alive, or you are a heap of ashes. You're dead. And he says, I'm between a rock and a hard spot. I don't know which to desire more. We've got to get inside the mind of Paul. He explains it in the second half of verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. What is Paul thinking of when he thinks of death? Being with Jesus. Leaving a world of sin and trouble and heartache and suffering and seeing Jesus face to face. My desire, he says, is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. To die for Paul is gain because to die is to be in paradise with Jesus. So he says gain. I don't know if you're hearing that correctly, but Paul is saying that he prefers to die. Paul is saying that death is his preference. Paul is saying that he is eager to die. And yet, make this distinction, Paul is not suicidal. Paul is not looking, here are the differences, Paul is not looking to escape this life. He is looking to get to Christ. He's not looking to escape something. He's looking to get to something. Paul is not overwhelmed by difficulty on earth. He is overwhelmed by the prospect of the presence of Christ. Paul is not looking for something to end. He's looking for something to begin. He's not hopeless. He's hopeful. His focus is not on the world and its circumstances. His focus is on Christ. That is what has him ready, even eager to die. Now again, I think it's more obvious how Christ will be honored if Paul were to be released to preach the gospel. But I think we still have the question. How is Christ glorified if Paul dies? I get how it's gained for Paul. But how is Christ honored in his body if he dies and the world loses this great preacher of the gospel? I get how Paul, if he dies, it's gain for him. But how is it honor for Christ? Well, think about what Paul is saying here and whether or not it magnifies Christ. Paul is looking forward to a moment called death. Isn't that what he's thinking about? He's looking forward to a moment called death. And at that moment, he will lose everything in this life. And when you come to that moment, and every single one of you will, when you reach that moment called death, you will lose everything. Everything in this life. You will take nothing with you. Nothing. So Paul is facing that moment. And in that moment, when Paul loses everything in this life and has only Christ waiting for him on the other side, Paul says, game. In that moment, when Paul loses everything in this life, his ministry, his money, his possessions, his reputation, his family, in that moment when he loses everything and all that's on the other side is Christ, Paul says, gain, deal, trade, right now, right here, let's go. Let's go. When a man dies like that, with Christ as his greatest treasure, you don't see that and think, what a great man. You see that and think, what a great Christ. How great is Christ? That for Paul to lose everything in this life, everything that I want, that I'm striving for, that I'm worried about, that I'm anxious about, that I'm fretting about, all this stuff that I'm managing, that I'm trying to control, that I'm finding joy in, that I'm finding comfort in, loses all that and all he gets is Christ. And Paul says, gain. For you, Christ will be honored in your death if and only if when you die he is your greatest treasure that's the only way Christ will be honored in your death Richard Baxter the 17th century thinking on the truth of these verses wrote in one of his hymns. We sang it this morning. And if my life is long, I will be glad that I may long obey. But if it's short, why would I be sad? To welcome endless day. What's Baxter saying? To live is Christ. To die is gain. In conclusion, let's think about two things together. I know you're already thinking about these things. Think about your life and think about your death. Please, I'm pleading with you this morning. I'm pleading with you this morning. Think about your life right now. I'm pleading with you this morning. Think about your death. Number one, think about your life. What are you living for? What are you living for? What is most important to you? Who are you living for? William Wallace in the movie Braveheart, his character said, probably the most famous line in that movie, such a good line, so true. Remember what he said? Every man dies, but not every man really lives. Friends, there's a difference between mere existence and living for Christ. What are you living for? What would this sentence sound like for you? For to me, to live is... And how would you fill in that sentence? Or how would those who know you best... Fill in that sentence for you. Would it be Christ? Or would it be something else? For to me, to live is success, then loss. Family, then loss. Money, then loss. Church, then loss. Works, morality, then loss. Reputation, loss. Spouse, loss. Children, loss. Christ, gain. What are you living for? What is most important to you? Are you ready, as Paul was, to live for Christ no matter what? No matter what your peers are living for, no matter what your friends are living for, no matter what your family is living for, are you ready to live for Christ? The world around you is not living for Christ. It doesn't take long. You don't have to know someone very well. You don't. To know what they are living for. What are you living for? Samuel Rutherford put it this way. Build your nest in no tree here on earth because God has sold the entire forest to death. Put your treasures in heaven, in heavenly places. What are you living for? Roland Hill he was a pastor in England. He was a friend of Charles Spurgeon. He was desperate to preach the gospel and see people come to know Christ and find joyful life in him. And apparently, from time to time, Mr. Hill would grieve because people were not responding to his preaching. And so one day, he looked out his window and he watched a pig farmer leading pigs to the slaughterhouse. And he's watching these pigs just merrily and happily follow the pig farmer to the slaughterhouse. And when the pig farmer came out, Roland Hill approached him and here's what he said. You tell me, brother farmer, how do you get pigs to follow you to their death when I can't get people to follow me to life eternal? That was his grief. The pig farmer said, don't you notice that as I walk along past your house, I just had a few crumbs in my pocket, a little bit of pig's food. I just dropped it every few steps, a few crumbs. And these pigs are so stupid that for a few crumbs, they'll go right to their death. Friends, don't be like the pigs that for a little bit of the world's food go to their slaughterhouse. Turn and live for Christ. I know many of you don't want to do this, but I would ask you to think about your death. Think about your death. may seem morbid to some of you but it's the subject in our verses today are you ready to die what a question are you ready to die can you think about your death some have said that a person is not ready to live until they're ready to die In the 19th century, John Patton was a missionary from Scotland, and he was going to be headed to the South Sea Islands. For 18 centuries, these people had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So some of you know the story. John Patton was convicted to, to go and to bring the gospel to the tribes that were there. About 20 years before he went, two missionaries from England went. And they went to shore, and their friends watched from sea as they were clubbed to death and eaten. And no one tried since. John Patton, who wanted to live for Christ, was set on fire by verses like Philippians 1.21, decided he was going to go. So you can imagine the concern of the people in his church. So an elderly man in Patton's church came to Patton and told him, trying to discourage him, you will be eaten by cannibals. And this was his famous reply. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Who talks like that? Christians talk like that. Christians who are set on fire by Philippians 1.21 talk like that. Christians who desire more than anything else to live for Christ and understand that to die is only gain. One of the things John Wesley said when asked why his movement was so successful, his reply was, our people die very well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote down before he died, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. And Paul said, For to me to live, Christ. To die, gain. In conclusion, if you are not in Christ, your death will not be gain. It will be loss. It will only be loss you will be shut out from what is good forever. Turn to Christ. Turn from your dead idols and your earthly treasures, your foolish hopes, your sin, your own works, your own ways, and trust Christ and Christ alone for your deliverance. And for those of you here this morning who are Christians, and I'm so glad there's many of you Do you remember, are you still in touch with what you deserve? Be reminded this morning of what it is that we deserve. If we keep that in mind and think about Christ and His grace toward us, it changes everything. It makes you thankful for everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these words that you have given us. We thank you for the life that our brother Paul lived. We thank you for the fire that you set in him by your Holy Spirit. We're thankful for his example and the example of so many other men and women that have gone before us. And God, we stand on their shoulders. We're thankful for those who have lived for you. We're thankful for those who have died for you. We see a history that is rich with people who clung to you to their death and how it only served to advance your gospel. We look at a history that is rich with people trying to extinguish your gospel and in their efforts only setting it ablaze over and over and over again. It is true what you said. The gates of hell itself cannot resist your church. At personally speaking, we thank you this morning, those of us who have been redeemed by your son, Jesus. We're filled with gratitude. We're filled with hope. We ask, Lord, that you would save those we know and love. We ask that they would grow to love you. That they would grow to trust you that it would deepen far and wide. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.